Coming up on today's show, how to rebound from a layoff in the tech sector. Hockey Canada, the non-disclosure agreement has caused a lot of problems for a lot of people. Is it time to get rid of them or at least change the way they operate? We'll talk about Major League Baseball's Field of Dreams game. And a quick update on how you can watch the Perseids meteor shower. Typically, when we've been talking about employment in our country for quite a while now, we've been talking about record low unemployment, uh, over a million available jobs, companies that can't find enough people to do the work that they have available. You would think things are just great if you're a prospective employee in Canada. Not if you're in the tech sector. Things have been pretty tough in the tech sector. Just this week, Hootsuite, which is a Canadian company. Sarah, do you know from Hootsuite? No. I think they do Twitter. Maybe. Oh, yeah, they do. It's like a big platform for Twitter, right? Kind of. I think you can schedule other stuff on there. Too, yeah, I think yeah. you can do other stuff, but yeah. I think it's built loosely around Twitter. Anyway, they're a big Canadian company that's been very, very successful, but they announced that they are cutting their workforce by 30% in a, their latest round of layoffs, and they're not alone. Shopify, 10% of their staff. Wealth Simple, 13%. ClearCo, an e-commerce group run by the Dragon's Den star, uh, Michelle Romano, 25% at the end of July. So, um, big, big layoffs in the tech sector. So what's going on? And, and if you're caught up in that, uh, what do you do about it? We're going to have a discussion here with Mike Sheckman, who is the regional director in Vancouver for employment consultancy, Robert Half. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. I mean, is this uh, pretty widespread across the tech sector? Or are we just pointing out some of the big ones? Or are we seeing this, that whole sector of the economy seeing some hits lately? Well, the tech space right across the country has seen and experienced uh, turbulence over the past uh, number of weeks and, and even months. Uh, but it, it, it seems to be quite uh, directed to some of the tech space. Uh, you know, we've seen organizations in the space invest heavily over the last 18 months in technology and hiring uh, major digital transformation due to uh, the onset of the pandemic. So uh, we're seeing a little bit correcting going on right across the market uh, within the space. So if you're one of the tens of thousands of Canadians that have been caught up in this in the last few weeks, what do you do when that initial, you know, it's it's almost like a smack, like, oh my goodness, this is it. I, I've just lost my job. What's the best yeah. course of action like in that moment? It's a pause. It's, it's going to be a shock and uh, mentally uh, your ego is going to take a bit of a yeah. hit because you're going to think to yourself, I'm one of 10 or maybe maybe up to 30%, which we've seen with Hootsuite, so three out of 10. And you're going to start asking yourself questions. Why me? What did I do? Uh, is my work, uh, you know, what, what makes, how did the decision even come about? So there's a lot more questions than, than answers. So it's really important to just take a, a moment to yourself to decompress. And the worst thing to do on the other side of the spectrum is overreact. Uh, and so taking the weekend to just, you know, again, decompress and think about uh, what you want to do and, and pause is going to be really, really important as the first uh, step in that process. Yeah, just give yourself a second to sort of process what's going on. And then it is time to get back on the hunt. Sooner or later, that time arrives. And it'll be different for different people, right? I mean, that, that processing and sort of recovering time will be different for different people, won't it? Yes, yes. I think no, uh, no two uh, journeys are the same. We always talk about and uh, the same way that the pandemic. I think everybody's gone through yeah. that piece. Um, and I think that's, that's an important thing to, to think about because even as you want to support some of the individuals that have been impacted uh, by these layoffs, 
you have to really come in with a point of empathy and, and kindness and give people the time and space to uh, to basically uh, rebound and, and recover. So the next thing you want to do in this process is just figure out your, your finances. So look at potentially if you did receive a severance package, uh, understand what your run rate looks like because you will, you will potentially have to revisit your monthly budget and that may have to change, especially not having that income. So there's a little bit of that stress that will come will come through, but it will give you an idea of how quickly you need to get back uh, on your feet. So that second piece is sometimes skipped because people just right away react and just go go full throttle to apply to a new position. So uh, you want to be really methodical and thoughtful through that uh, through that process. Is there a possibility, and I've heard this from some people who've been through layoffs and things like that, you know, where they had to make a change, not of their own doing, but they realized afterwards that, you know what, it was a bit of a blessing. I, I found something better. I took a chance to sort of be a little more surgical in what I was after in the situation that I wanted to find myself. And it was sort of, we just keep going to work because it's our job, but when it's not your job and you get a chance to reassess where you're going and what direction you're headed in, maybe it can work out better for you. Uh, absolutely, and we've seen that because I think that uh, many people, even though they're they're laid off, it's one of the only times actually in people's careers that where they have an opportunity to really pause and think yeah. about what they want to do next. It's it's a full time job to actually find a job. So most times, you know, positions get presented to you, and maybe that's the only one or two roles that are in front of you. But you have a bit of a white canvas and a clean slate to really go to market and strategize in terms of what do I really want to do next. So it's a great opportunity, a bit of a a blessing in disguise. What about striking out on your own? It seems like in the internet age, there are more and more people doing that, setting up their own. Maybe it was a side hustle while you were working and now it becomes your full-time gig. Are we seeing more and more of that? Yeah, that continues to be. A lot of individuals have gone out, uh, whether it's consulting or uh, again, taking a little bit of a risk and, and being laid off, you already seeing different organizations or different individuals uh, pop up uh, their their business and, and maybe spending a little bit more uh, time and resources into their own business. So it, it has uh, it has increased in terms of individuals that uh, have taken a bit more of a, of a risk. Uh, as long as they're uh, are, are comfortable with that uh, that piece of it, so it's uh, it's been it's been a good uh, good way and a good time to uh, to action that. Uh, but another key thing is um, as you're moving through that process and and once you're ready to to commit and get back on on the horse, uh, you want to be able to make sure you're updating your your social site. So. We yeah. talked about uh, Twitter. Um, you got to go on, maybe on on the LinkedIn uh, page and making sure that that aligns with your your resume. Uh, you want to be able to start net- networking and networking not just online but also uh, offline. So you know, as as we come out of the pandemic, now it's people are much more comfortable. You want to get out there, put your name out there, and and start uh, really putting uh, your profile out uh, to out to market by uh, by leveraging your network. Yeah, Mike, you make a really good point. Like, if, especially if you're being laid off in the tech sector, the same tools that you use to do your job, the things that you were using every single day can still be tools to help you find a new job, right? That technology is sort of a foundational piece in finding a job in a lot of ways. Uh, absolutely. Uh, the, the way um, uh, you, you, I always say that you utilize and leverage every resources you have. Yeah. I wouldn't put everything into the technology, uh, but certainly that's going to be one of the tools that you're going to be able to to utilize to land your job, uh, whether it's uh, online or even online networking events as well. Uh, but there's a lot of uh, phenomenal uh, tools to uh, to leverage.
Mike, great conversation. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. Thank you. You too. That's Mike Sheckman, Regional Director in Vancouver for Employment Consultancy, Robert Half. Yeah, I, I don't know. Sarah, you got laid off, right? You, you were a pandemic layoff? Yeah, I was a pandemic layoff. And then you ended up here? Yes. So like like Mike says, it was a bit of a blessing for you. It actually was. Because now I, you get to work here. Yeah, I I prefer this job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I've talked to other people who've gone through the same sort of a thing and found out that, hey, wait a minute, you know, this actually, it worked out better for me in the end. I... I Knock on wood, and this is probably a dumb thing to say out loud after the length of time I've had in media, I haven't been fired or laid off, which is uh, not uh, something that a lot of people can say in this industry, unfortunately. It's the way it's gone over the years, but um, uh, yeah, I don't know. So I I don't have a lot of experience in this area, but I mean, people do. The latest data so far this year shows that 493 startups, and when we're talking tech, in a lot of cases, we're talking startups. A lot of these are new businesses that take off and are going great guns, and then things change. And uh, of the 493 startups that have had layoffs this year, uh, you're looking at about 70,000 people have been laid off. So that sector is certainly not seeing the economic or the growth in jobs that we're seeing in so many other sectors, right? Because we've talked about record low unemployment, not only in Canada, but in the United States as well. We've got over a million jobs available in Canada right now. So maybe it's you, you pivot and start a career in one of those sectors that it desperately needs staff. Who knows? Opportunity is there. I guess that's the good news. And maybe it will turn out to be something good. I know when it happens, it doesn't feel good, but maybe a year down the road, you look back and say, hey, turned out to be a good thing. The Hockey Canada sexual assault uh, situation, uh, we've talked about this, the settlement primarily, right? And we know that the investigation has been relaunched and, and all the rest, and this is not the end of the story. We're going to find out more. But as this went along, a lot of people asking, well, how do we not know so much about this, right? First of all, why were there no criminal charges? Um, who was involved? I mean, who were the players that were, you know, part of this situation that led to the settlement? How much was the settlement? I mean, all these sorts of things. We don't know. We don't have answers. Uh, why? Largely because of NDA, non-disclosure agreements. That's sort of part of these settlements in many, many cases. And there's renewed calls to do away with them. Some provinces already have. And uh, joining us now to talk about it is Julie McFarlane, who's a law professor, University of Windsor, uh, and co-founder of Count By My Silence. She's worked with provincial governments on getting rid of non-disclosure agreements in these kinds of settlements. Julie, thank you for joining us. I appreciate your time. Happy to be here. Yeah, we'll get more on your work on this area in just a second. But first, let's let's determine the field of play. What is the 101 on a non-disclosure agreement? Uh, when are they applied and who gets them? And, and what do they typically um, mean you can't do? Right. Well, first of all, Shane, they are very, very common now. And I think what Hockey Canada has illustrated is that this is something that is going on all over the place in all kinds of agreements, uh, not just for matters of, as it was in this case, alleged sexual assault, but also all kinds of different workplace complaints, complaints about discrimination, harassment, bullying. Uh, I've seen them in cases of fraud, in medical negligence, malpractice cases, you name it. Uh, 95% of settlement agreements in civil cases, that is cases that aren't in the criminal courts, but in the civil courts, 95% of these cases now have these non-disclosure agreements. So 
as you said, what the heck is a non-disclosure agreement and where did this come from? Well, originally, and I think this really is helpful for people to understand, originally the point of an NDA was if somebody was working in an environment in which there was confidential material, perhaps it was personal material or research or commercially valuable material, they would be asked to sign an NDA in order not to pass this on to competitors or to people who were you know, inappropriate to see that particular sure, sure. intellectual property. But what's happened, Shane, over the last 10, 15 years or so is that the use of NDAs has crept into, as I've said, almost every single area of law. And essentially what an NDA does is two things. First of all, it says that nothing related to the experience, related to the events that led up to the settlement, uh, nothing, no part of what happened and what is now being settled in the claim can be spoken about. And these are these clauses are, are pretty much blanket. So when I say can be, not be spoken about, that includes to your family, to your friends, to a therapist or a counselor, if, for example, after a traumatic incident you were seeking some kind of, of counseling or support and you know a blanket ban on speaking to anybody about it and the second part of it is that that is permanent it is forever right. and it, unlike a confidentiality clause that could just protect the, the privacy of a victim which i think all of us would recognize would be important what the victim or the complainant is being asked to do is to give that same degree of privacy and confidentiality to the other side, to the perpetrator, in order for them to have their own confidentiality. So in other words, it's mutual. So the young woman in the Hockey Canada case had to agree to say nothing about what had happened to her, never to identify the perpetrators, in order that she could herself have her own privacy. So, I mean... For lack of a better term, Julia, it seems to me in a lot of ways for uh, the accused in these cases, it's it's a get out of jail, well, not free card because you're paying a settlement, but it basically right. that ends it, right? I mean, that you're no longer at risk criminally, civilly, nothing. It's sort of, this is how much it costs me to make this go away. And if I have the money, I'll just spend it. Right. Well, first of all, a couple of things on that, Shane. One is that It is clear, even though it is still tried, and I think sometimes people are still duped on this, you cannot forbid somebody from reporting to the police. Although I have seen agreements in which that has been a clause, but in fact, that's not enforceable. It's really just a fraud on people. But yes, otherwise, you're quite right. This is an ending of what's happened. And of course, if you think about this from the point of view of a perpetrator, Shane, or even an employer organization of that person, you know, let's say we're talking about somebody who's been sexually harassing other employees for years on end. They don't want this out there in public because they feel it makes them look bad. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that's exactly what's happened with Hockey Canada. But I think as the public starts to understand this, they're realizing that actually what makes them look bad is the fact they're trying to cover it all up. It would be better to be forthright and disclosing so that people actually knew what had happened than to keep trying to push it down with an NDA. That's a great point. You're absolutely right. Uh, the other side of the argument, and I've seen some defense lawyers talking about this over the past week or two around NDAs, is, listen, if you get rid of NDAs, I don't get settlements for my clients anymore. That's the chip that we have. That's sort of what we bring to the table and offer to the uh, uh, the accused to say, hey, listen, 
pay us if we, you know, here's the settlement and we'll be quiet. If we don't have that, then we won't get settlements. People will just say, well, there's no point in negotiating anyway. Yeah, I mean, you know, to be totally candid, Shane, about this argument, that's the lazy lawyer argument, because it says, you know, we have this nice little thing going with the other side where we all agree to keep everything quiet and then we get a settlement. But in reality, of course, we've had cases settling outside the civil courts for very good reasons, because it's so difficult and so hard and so expensive to go to court. We've had them settling at a rate of 95% for about 35 years. And I think often people don't realize that. And there weren't NDAs around 35 years ago. So this is just the latest fashion. This is the latest, you know, I have to have this, it's non-negotiable. I mean, when you think, when I heard those statements being made by some of the defense counsel, the thing that went through my mind, and I'm sure the minds of many people who've been plaintiffs or victims in these cases is, well, surely we're bargaining about compensation for the harm that's been done to me. You know, to say that I have no other bargaining chips than promising silence is ludicrous because it completely ignores the fact that I've been raped or assaulted or harassed. That's the harm that's being negotiated over here. And what we want to do is to take the option of that, you know, effective silencing of the victim and protection of the other side completely off the table. And I can assure you cases will still go on settling at 95%. Well, you've done this. Uh, you've you've worked with provincial governments. It's happened in some provincial yeah. governments. I know in the Maritimes where they've said, okay, no more NDAs. I mean, what's, what's your experience there? The, 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 is, does that mean no more cases? Nobody's settling anymore? Well, no. I mean, first of all, it's the legislation that we're proposing has passed in Prince Edward Island, and it's been tabled, it's been introduced in Nova Scotia and in Manitoba, and we're hoping it's going to be also introduced in other provinces over the next year. Right. We're working on that. Um, interestingly, Shane, you know, look at another jurisdiction that has banned NDAs, um, and that's California, and they were one of the very first places to do this, and they did it in relation to sexual harassment, first of all, in 2018. So we've had four years of data since then. And guess what? No change in the settlement levels of sexual harassment cases. Hmm. Something else just takes its place. It's just this is the latest fashion. But I think that most people who understand it recognize that it's very it's a very immoral bargain. And it's bad for the public because we don't know who the people are. That's right who have done, you know, whatever it is that's been alleged to be done. There's even an expression that has it has become so commonplace that has developed, and it is past the trash. So when an employer wants to pass somebody who has a record of this kind to another employer, they bury the information in an NDA, and then they get transferred, and nobody knows any better until they start doing it again. So the next step here, as you said, a number of provinces looking at this at that level, but federally is the big prize, right? If we can get this brought in at a federal level? Well, in fact, the provinces are really more important, Shane, in in employment law. I mean, they're the ones that are going to have the most impact on people's lives. We are also talking to the feds about making sure that non-disclosure agreements are not used when they terminate federal employees in just the same way. And we have a number of cases of people who've come to the campaign who were formerly federal civil servants who were terminated um, for discrimination or, or, sorry, because they complained about discrimination or they complained about harassment. Um, And they were NDA'd as well. So what we're trying to do is to get the federal government to introduce this for all of its employees. But I think Hockey Canada shows that there might be an appetite for also putting some kind of federal restrictions on NDA's on federally funded organizations like Hockey Canada, for example. Yeah.
Right, exactly. Yeah. Uh, Julie, very interesting work. I appreciate you joining us and talking about it today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Can't buy my silence. That's the name of our campaign and our website. Thank you, Shane. Thank you very much. That is Julie McFarlane, who is a law professor, University of Windsor, and as you heard, the co-founder of Can't Buy My Silence. And um, we'll see where that goes. But, you know, it is interesting because we've talked a lot about this and there's so many questions. And I I mean, Hockey Canada is just one of many, 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 many instances of this, right? But it's a very, very prominent and public one. And I think it leads a lot of us sort of asking the question, well, how do we not know anything about this? Well, this is why you don't know anything about it because of these NDAs. First of all, did you see um, the uh, Field of Dreams game last night? It's pretty cool. It, it's only the second time they've done it, but it, they're going to do it every year. You know the Heritage Classic that we have in hockey? And we have the outdoor games, and now they've been adopted, and they're an annual thing. This is sort of the same thing, but done for baseball. If you've seen the movie Field of Dreams, you know Kevin Costner? Um, you've seen it, right? Fantastic movie. They play baseball in the corn. If you build it, they will come. So he builds the baseball diamond in the middle of the cornfield and all these old baseball players from, I think it's uh, Chicago White Sox back in uh, Shoeless Joe Jackson and all the rest. Anyway, it's beautiful. It's incredible. And so they recreate that now for two years uh, in uh, Iowa, in a cornfield in Iowa. They have two major league teams show up. Last year, um, saw the Chicago White Sox beat the New York Yankees. And this week, Chicago Cubs against the Cincinnati Reds. And it really is remarkable. There's just something about baseball. But there's some discussion about whether or not the heritage and the history around baseball. There's never been a Major League Baseball team in Iowa. But this is the thing about baseball. So let's get into it. We're going to have a discussion now with Brian Martin, who is a Canadian baseball historian and author. Brian, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your time. Happy to be here, Shay. Let's let's talk about ba- what is it. I, I've often wondered, and it's not just this, but it, there, the stories that surround baseball, the legends, the history. Some of them just happen naturally in a game. Some of them happen completely manufactured, like this. What is it about baseball that lends itself to stories like this? Well, it's been, stories have been told about baseball for years and years and years and years. And, you know, there's that, that uh, story that baseball was invented in Cooperstown, New York, yeah. in 1837. Well, uh, that's... For the longest time, that was considered to be true. The United States Post Office issued a stamp in 1939 on the 100th anniversary of the uh, invention of baseball in 1839 in Cooperstown, New York. And if you go to Cooperstown, New York, which I've been to many times, uh, there's a thing called Doubleday Field, and there's a big brass plaque on it, and I'm reading from it. It's called Doubleday Field, birthplace of baseball. And there's another plaque in memory of people that were involved in it and say these people's efforts led to the development of Doubleday Field on the site where Abner Doubleday invented the game of baseball right. in 1839. Yeah. Well, I've heard that. Abner Double- I've heard that. Yeah, well, it's not true. It's a, it's a, it's bogus. It's bogus. And you know, in the Hall of Fame, which is ironic because they, you just sort of smile and you just admire the, 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 the myth. And and uh, Cooperstown is a great place for baseball if you like baseball. Yeah. But there's. 
in the museum itself, there's a ball that they claim was from the very first game of baseball. And just a few feet away from it is this little sign. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read it. It says, in 1905, the United States was taking its place on the world stage, eager to establish its distinct heritage. And that spirit, sporting goods magnate Albert Spaulding handpicked a special commission to prove the national game's roots. The eventual verdict, Civil War hero Abner Doubleday created baseball in Cooperstown in 1839. In fact, baseball was played decades earlier, the plaque continues, evolving from similar bat and ball games. Doubleday didn't invent baseball. Baseball invented Doubleday, a thriving legend that reflects America's desire to make the game our own. Well, So they even have a plaque that admits they didn't invent it. Yeah, yeah, they've got a plaque admitting it um, now, but they still they still carry on this this myth because I mean baseball is 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 it's pastoral the the field of dreams thing you know that's from Shoeless Joe the the, the book Shoeless Joe by a Canadian, Canadian. You know, Warren Kinsella and the story of Cooperstown I believe I wrote a book called Baseball's Creation Myth the story about Cooperstown I believe had its roots in a story about a game played in Ontario in 1838 and related many 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 years later and then appropriated by uh, what I think was a, a drinking buddy a neighbor of his out in Denver Colorado uh, Abner Graves who told the Cooperstown story so the roots of the Cooper <laughs> Cooperstown story, I believe, is Canadian. The roots of the Field of Dreams thing is Canadian, and yet the Americans say, "No, it's our game and it's our myth." So we've, we as Canadians, have played an integral role in helping the Americans create and then sustain some myths. And and they do, and they live on, and they get bigger, and they get bigger, and now they become a central part of the annual season. They, the Major League Baseball is going to make a huge thing out of this. But it's lovely. I don't know if you watched the game on TV. I loved it. It's 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 not accurate. I mean, even that field they play on is 400 yards away from the one they use for the movie, right? <laughs> I mean, they, they, but they just tweak things a little bit and embellish, and it's harmless, but it's fun. And if you love baseball, you just accept the fact that there's a lot of, you know, I can't say BS on the radio, but uh, a lot of that sort of thing is attached to it. And and is it? I mean, baseball. It's not an older game, right? I mean, we've had the other games, we've had the other leagues. They've been around almost as long, if not just as long. Why does these? Why does the myth, as you and that's the perfect word for it? Why do these myths sprout up around baseball? Uh, because people like it so much, and, and you know, uh, for some reason, the Americans wanted to find when uh, when baseball began. Like it had to have been invented by some very smart guy at some specific time. Well, we in Canada have hockey. And early games were played in Kingston and in Nova Scotia. But we aren't as obsessed to determine where the very first no. game of hockey was was held. You know, I love the Americans, but they want to know what's the best, what's the first, what's the biggest, you know. Um, and, and they were seem to be uh, driven to uh, taking things that happened in the past or may have happened in the past and really celebrating them. And the, the fact checkers, uh, the fact checkers that... Uh, um, we're asleep at the switch on some of these things. <laughs> How are they with the basketball? That's being generous. They, they, Pardon me. They give us the fact that a Canadian invented basketball, but they, but he did it in America, right? Isn't that how yeah, they sort of and, explain? And they them? don't. They don't give us credit that a Canadian invented the telephone to get away from sports. But, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's funny because we are complicit. I suppose we are complicit in some of these myths that uh, surround baseball. And that's okay. It's such a great game. I mean, um, uh, everyone has their favorite sport. Baseball is mine. I played it competitively when I was younger. I live in London, Ontario, and we're the home of the world's oldest baseball park. Um, 1877, the London Tecumseh's, who played in a 
major professional league and were one of the top teams in all of North America, they needed a better ballpark. So they built this one, which was originally called Le, uh, Tecumseh Park, now called Labatt Park. It's still being used today uh, wow. and is in the Guinness World Book of Records as the oldest baseball park in the world. And, and it is. So we in southwestern Ontario, where I happen to live, um, is sort of the hotbed of baseball. But we were a hotbed at the same time places like Cooperstown and upstate New York and Massachusetts. So it all goes back to the same thing. But if you really want to go back, Shay, yeah. baseball games of stick and ball date back to Egypt. I mean, it's hard to determine what, what, when, what, what was modern baseball. I mean, was it because of the rules they finally codified them in 1845 with the Knickerbockers? Or was it something that was played along before that? I mean, the first game in Canada, um, a fellow historian, Bill Humber, 1816 in Hamilton which predates oh, wow. the, the game in Beachville in 1838 that we know about quite a bit. So we had a form of baseball, but we don't know what the rules were is the problem. You know, newspapers didn't have a lot of box scores back in, uh, in 1816. The, the box score wasn't invented until late in the <laughs> 1800s, so we don't know exactly what rules. There's a game that play, London played against a little town called Delaware, and it was uh, uh, in 1854, and there's a report of that, but the, they only played three innings, and the score was like 44 to 20-something or other. <laughs> so what rules were they playing? You know, in some of the early games, everybody had to bat repeatedly, despite the number of outs. And the earliest games, you had to, to get somebody out, you had to hit them with the ball as they're running around the bases. Oh, really? You know? That oh, would yeah. be interesting. Oh, yeah. Well, it was actually fun. The kids loved it because they tried to dodge getting hit by the ball. But, uh, you know, they, they changed the rules so that you just uh, you had to tag them rather than hit them with the ball, which the, back then the ball was a lot softer than it is today, sure. so it didn't really hurt. But that was one of the uh, appeals of the game uh, way back when. Where does rounders fit? I had an, a grade school teacher that told us we were going to play rounders, and we didn't know what she was talking about. Turned out it was baseball. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's a British game uh, that most people believe baseball is derived from yeah it's a ball and it's running around and that sort of thing i've seen some uh, i've seen some video of it and it's it's interesting it's it's a child's game actually it's okay. not an adult's game but uh yeah back in england there's reports of that in the 1700s that's right yeah exactly yeah um okay as a baseball historian we're talking about the legends and the myths that surround that great game uh, as a guy who what, what's your favorite which one stands out to you as the great all-time baseball legend oh well <laughs> One that, the call the shot by Babe Ruth. You know, he he said he was going to hit this homer for yep. the sick kid, and he pointed. And pointed into the stand. Yeah, and um, that is so up there as, oh, the second one is that the Babe Ruth's first, first professional home run landed in Lake Ontario because the Providence Grays he was playing with played at Hanlon's Point Park and that he hit it out of the park and it landed in Lake Ontario and people still believe it's there. Well, if you look at the press accounts of the day, including from the Providence paper that was traveling with the Providence team, the ball went into the stands. It didn't go into the water. But that myth about Babe Ruth's first... Now, it was his first professional home run, but it did not go into Lake Ontario. So there's whole... I mean... Everywhere you turn, there's something, you know? There is. There really is. Brian, thank you so much for sharing some stories. I appreciate your time. I appreciate your time, Shay, and uh, take care. You too. That's Brian Martin, who's a Canadian baseball historian and author. And, yeah, the history is just, uh, just fantastic. And it all, Babe Ruth, not all of the stories. 
but he seems to be in the middle of a bunch of them. I think my favorite Babe Ruth story, and I have no doubt that it's made up and it's not true. Uh, Babe grew up in orphanages. If, you, if you've seen the movie and you read the books and things like that, and there's a story that goes, he was playing in the uh, courtyard at the, I think it was the orphanage, something like that. I'm not sure. And um, he hit the ball and, you know, I mean, Babe was a home one king, right? So went through a window. So Babe has to go back and get the ball out of the uh, office that it went into. I think it was a priest that had the office, something like that anyway. So Babe goes in to get the ball and gets it back and throws it back through the hole that he had put in the window when he hit it through. He was a pitcher. I mean, the legendary stories around Babe Ruth, as he mentions, the called shots. And uh, I mean, they made movies about this guy as far as the history and the legend and the myth of baseball. A lot of it starts and ends with Babe Ruth, but there is something about that game that just, I think they just revere those kinds of stories and those legend. And I mean, I went to Fenway Park um, last fall and it, it was built in 1912. So it's well over a hundred years old. And I'll tell you, if you dreamed of touching Fenway Park, the people of Boston would riot. It's not, there's no talk of, we need a new building. No, 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 no. Fenway is revered and it's old and there's pillars in the way. And I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's decrepit in a lot of ways, but it's, it's, it's Fenway Park. And it's part of that legendary status that baseball has achieved in so many areas. It's, it's amazing. It really is. And the game just, for some reason, lends itself to it. Let's find out. we got Frank Florian joining us. Frank is, uh, of course, tell us world of science in Edmonton, the director of the Planetarium and the Space Sciences Department there. Frank, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Shay. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, sir. So t- how, do, how do we say it? I ask you this every time we talk. Yeah, it's uh, called the Perseid Meteor Shower, or sometimes, if you just call them this group, the Perseids. And uh, it's got that name because what we're going to be seeing tonight seems to originate out of the constellation of Perseus, okay. one of the patterns of stars that we see in our evening sky. Perseid. We'll remember yes. that for next time. Okay, and tonight is the night, right? Tonight's the best night for it? Yeah, today is the peak of the Perseid meteor shower. Uh, it's, uh, the peak is said to be around 7 p.m. our time, uh, but, of course, it doesn't get dark till about 10.30 or so. And even then, the early meteors are going to be sort of uh, skimming the upper atmosphere of the Earth, so you got to wait a little bit later. So... Um, you know, anytime after uh, 10.30, you start looking up, and you might start seeing some of these streaks of light crossing the sky, all coming away from the constellation of Perseus in the early evening. That's seen off towards the uh, northeastern part of the sky. But uh, the meteors will appear everywhere in the sky, just moving away from the northeast in the early evening and raining down on you by the early morning hours. Okay, so you don't necessarily have to look in one particular direction. If you just look up, you'll probably see something? You bet. You just got to look up. Now, this year we have the full moon or the near yeah. full moon. It was actually full yesterday, and that's going to shed a lot of extra light in the sky. So, you know, from the city with our city lights and with the moon up there, we're only going to see the brighter meteors uh, from the, the city of Edmonton or any kind of uh, urban location. If you're out in the country, you might see a few more, but again, that full moon, uh, near full moon, is going to hinder some of that meteor watching. Do you need any equipment, Frank? Can you just look up with the naked eye, or do you need binoculars or anything like that? You know, with meteors, uh, you just got to look up with your own eyes, and it's usually best to take in a, as wide a field of view as possible. So I lie down on a, a lawn chair and just kind of look up and gaze up and scan the sky all around because uh, they can appear anywhere in the sky, not just in one certain area. So uh, a nice thing to do is just lie back and look up and scan the sky. Now, if there's a bright fireball, something that really lights up the entire sky, and if you have some binoculars handy, you might want to use those binoculars and look at the trail of debris left behind from that bright 
white fireball associated with the Perseid meteor shower. And uh, that's always kind of cool to look at and see what the atmospheric winds do with the debris from that um, particle burning up in the Earth's atmosphere. How big of a difference does it make if you get out of town? Like, is it worth it, do you think, to, to make that trip? Is it going to be a startling difference? You know, with the full moon in the sky, it's uh, probably not going to make that much okay. of a difference. Uh, if you can shield the southern horizon a bit with some trees, uh, kind of get rid of that uh, glow of the moon, you know, uh, the moon's low enough in the southern sky that you might be able to see some more of the fainter ones, uh, even from the city uh, and out in the country. you probably see a few more, but I wouldn't say it's going to be that many more. Now, these aren't giant things racing. It's like a shooting star, right? Yeah, that's what these things are. We call them shooting stars, yeah. falling stars, or meteors. And these are small bits of debris, in this case, left behind by a comet called Swift Tuttle. Uh, that comet uh, came by the inner solar system back in 1992, and on that passage, it left behind some new material that the Earth is passing through. So it gave us some kind of outburst years where we saw a greater number of these meteors uh, uh, through the sky. And again, these particles left behind by a comet are quite small, under order of a, like a grain of sand, maybe a little bit bigger, maybe the size of a marble for some of the bigger ones, but uh, they're pretty tiny. Okay, and tonight's the night, but if you miss it tonight, usually lasts for a couple of nights, doesn't it? Well, this particular meteor shower has a very broad uh, kind of uh, date range. It starts around July 14th and goes to about August 24th, but uh, it's during the peak nights, peak. like tonight, tomorrow night, that you'll probably see the most number of uh, Perseid meteors. After that, or before the peak date, you'll see a few maybe during the night, and that's a big maybe. Um, you know, uh, on a night like tonight with the moon up in the sky, you might be able to count a few meteors per hour. If there was no moon in the sky and you're away from bright city lights, uh, then uh, the zenith hourly rate would be upwards of about 90 meteors per hour, so like one a wow. minute at least. Uh, but again, with the moon up there, city lights and that, uh, you might be lucky to, you know, see a few bright ones during the night, but uh, don't don't look for it like rain coming down at you. Okay, fair enough. All right. Excellent stuff. Thank you so much, Frank. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks, Shane. Uh, keep looking up. Yeah, talk to you later. All right. Frank Florian, the director of the Planetarium and Space Sciences at the TELUS World of Science in Edmonton. I don't know if I'll drive out there. Frank had told me, yeah, it's going to be amazing. You need to go out and check it out. Might do that. I don't know. I keep meaning to do stuff like this because... It really does fascinate me. As I've told you, when we talk about space on the show, I love it. I, it's interesting to me. I, it's something I think I could spend a lot of time reading about. But I'd love to go to the Jasper. They have, I don't know what they call it, the Dark Skies Celebration or something. But its I think it's like a UN designation that Jasper has received called the Dark Skies uh, observatory or something. Because it's, it's far enough removed from any urban center where you get out there and uh, Dark Sky Reserve, thank you, Texter. Uh, the Dark Sky Reserve, where it's far enough removed from any large urban centers that you can really get a look at the way things are without the, the light pollution. Thanks for listening today. If you hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. 